Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the How Discussion Series, Burning Futures on Ecologies of Existence, a series devoted to ecological questions and their intersections with political, economical, and cultural dimensions. Previous discussions in this series on extinction and on facile economies, degrowth ecologies, took place in the theater and between several speakers and the audience. Due to the corona crisis, this third edition appears only as a podcast. It is centered around the expertise of Rob Wallace, evolutionary biologist and public health geographer in St. Paul, Minnesota. In his widely discussed 2016 book, Wallace argues that Big farms make big flu. Yet, while the SARS-CoV-2 emerged under different circumstances than the recent swine and avian influenzas, it is no less based on the human interference with and exploitation of nature. What makes this pandemic special? What are the structural conditions for it? What are the necessary measures to prevent such viral outbreaks and deal with them responsibly? And how does the new coronavirus shape our thinking about viral ecologies, especially when one has suffered from COVID-19? Hello and welcome to How Heblam Ufa's discursive series, Burning Futures on Ecologies of Existence. For this issue, as for the following issues, our current ecologies of existence put us in the viral scene. To discuss with physically present speakers and spectators in the theater, as we used to do in the series so far, is a privilege that we won't have for a while. Therefore, our discussion takes place only as a podcast. Yet it thus continues the series of Burning Futures podcasts that you can find in the online program How 3000. For today's podcast, we will shed light on the interconnection between humans' impact on ecosystems and the emergence of viruses. Over the last decades, we observed the rise and spread of a series of new dangerous pathogens, Ebola, HIV, bird flu and Q fever or various forms of influenza have been bothering humanity. Scientists such as epidemiologists, virologists or biologists have been prophetically warning us for years that it is not the if, but rather the when, these pathogens will cost millions of human deaths. Our explanations so far tend to treat this phenomena as isolated events that happen to us, something like a fate that comes over us. Scientists, though, have explanations that underline the structural causes of the rising epidemics. They relate the spread of the viruses to the way we interact with their natural hosts and their ecosystems, namely animals and the complex balance of natural environments that until recently could control these pathogens and prevent them from jumping on a journey throughout the globe. Today, we have the pleasure to speak with Rob Vallas, an evolutionary biologist in the Institute for Global Studies at the University of Minnesota, 
who has been outlining these arguments for decades and whose work has been widely discussed in the past weeks. For the last 25 years, he has been studying the emergence and spread of pathogens like influenza, HIV or the bird flu. He has been consulting on the flu for the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization and he is the author of the book Big Farms Make Big Flu. His research shows us that if we want to understand the nature of global disease outbreaks, one has to look at global agriculture. The needs of our global food markets result in deforestation to make space for large industrial farms, as well as in a process of going deeper and deeper into forests in order to ensure sufficient market supply with exotic food. These forests, though, are the home of wild animals that are actually the natural hosts for pathogens like Ebola, but also the new coronavirus. In other words, our way of our species' reproduction involves changing previously self-regulated ecosystems and create pathways that allow formerly marginalized pathogens to spill over to humans with deadly effects. The latter brings us back to questions that we have been discussing in the Burning Futures series before. The current corona crisis shares many features with the ecological crisis, the global dimension of causal relations across multiple scales of time and space and biocultural domains, the magnitude of the measures needed to prevent the worst, the logics of exponential growth and vicious feedbacks the multiplication of risks with existing inequalities, the relevance of medical and care structures as well as public and supply services, the need for a fundamental reorganization of value production, and so on. Many thinkers have thus presented this crisis as a drill for the larger coming catastrophe of ecocide. Yet while the ecological crisis is only slowly taking hold in the privileged countries of the West, the virus has already developed a massive impact here. The resulting worldwide restriction of industrial production and of the movement of goods and people provides the world climate with a measurable phase of recovery. Thus, in this crisis, the human, the microbial and the planetary are closely linked. Us, that is, the curators of the Burning Futures series, Margarita Zumo and Maximilian Haas, would thus like to relate the macrocosm of the climate to the microcosm of the virus and shed light on the consequences of COVID-19 for our ecologies of existence and ecological thinking. We're looking forward first to a lecture of Rob Wallace touching on the politics and epistemology of SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 and the historical genealogy and structural conditions of viral pandemics in general. The lecture will be followed by a discussion about the ramifications of the current crisis in thought and practice and what is necessary to prevent such crises in the future. So now, Rob, the mic is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Although such pleasure is indeed an occupational hazard on my part, as it is unlikely you would have invited me if uh, this outbreak hadn't happened. For something terrible is upon us. Whether we cower in our apartment sheltering in place in Berlin, or left to our own devices in the slums of Nairobi from which no such private shelter or even running water is available, 
or as I myself did, gasp for air from a COVID-19 infection in St. Paul, Minnesota, cut off from modern medical care. Wherever we are, a specter now haunts humanity. This amorphous threat is, to reference another manifesto, a reaction to capitalism first and foremost, than any other alternate system of social reproduction, past, present, and now inevitably, future. Wherever we are, our world is both more compressed by the quarantine and expanded beyond more than our bedrooms and into caves and forests on the other side of the world few humans have stumbled through. For those of us who are keeled over sick carry a virus that only a few short months ago emerged buff against the hothouse environment of a wild bat's immune system. SARS-2, the beta coronavirus that causes COVID-19, emerged out of wildlife refugia and in a matter of eight weeks splattered itself across humanity. The virus emerged at one terminus of a regional supply line in wild foods, successfully setting off a human-to-human -human chain of infections at the other end in Wuhan, China. From there, the outbreak both diffused locally and hopped onto planes and trains, spreading out across the globe through a web structured by a travel connections and down a hierarchy from larger to smaller cities. Other than describing the wild food market in the typical Orientalism, little effort has been expended on the most obvious of questions. How did the exotic food sector arrive at a standing where it could sell its wares alongside more traditional livestock in the largest market in Wuhan? The animals were not being sold off the back of a truck or in an alleyway. Think of the permits and payments involved. Worldwide, wild food is an increasingly formalized sector, ever more capitalized by the same sources backing industrial production. Although nowhere near similar in the magnitude of output, the distinction between the two sectors is now more opaque. The overlapping economic geography extends back from the Wuhan market to the hinterlands, where exotic and traditional foods are raised by operations bordering the edge of a contracting wilderness. As industrial production encroaches on the last of the forest, wild food operations must cut farther in to raise their delicacies or raid the last forest stands. As a result, the most exotic of pathogens, in this case, bat-hosted SARS-2, find their way onto a truck, whether in food animals or the labor tending them, shotgun from one end of a lengthening peri-urban circuit to the other before hitting the world stage. Now, yesterday I backtracked a little through the literature to learn that a veritable smorgasbord of non-human SARS specimens have been isolated in Greater Hubei, Wuhan's province, as far back as 2004. In bats, the short ridges horseshoe bat and the greater horseshoe bat, and in farmed civets, part and parcel of a wide range of non-traditional animal SARS strains distributed across China, including adjacent provinces well within Wuhan's wild food supply lines. SARS-2 isn't alone in this regard. Each new potential pandemic this century emerged along such expanding production circuits. Influenza A, H5N1, SARS-1, H1N1-2009, MERS, Ebola Macona, and Zika, among others, each emerged along some part of that regional circuit, some from wild animals in the forest, others along the peri-urban continuum, 
still others in the factory farms and processing plants on their city's edge, all arising out of a system that from country to country is subjected to neoliberal development at one terminus of the economic geography and intrinsic bio-insecurity and public health austerity at the other end. Now, the science characterizing such outbreaks, bought and sold like any other commodity since capitalism's origins, can mislead us. A number of superstars in the field of echo health, some funded in part by Colgate Palmolive and Johnson & Johnson, companies driving the bleeding edge of agribusiness-led deforestation, produced a global map based on previous outbreaks back to 1940, intimating where new pathogens moving forward are likely to emerge. The warmer the color on the map, the more likely a new pathogen should emerge there. But in confusing such absolute geographies, the team's map, red hot in China, India, Indonesia, and parts of Latin America and Africa, missed a critical point. Focusing on outbreak zones ignores the relations shared by global economic actors that shape epidemiologies. The capital interests backing development and production-induced changes in land use and disease emergence in underdeveloped parts of the globe reward efforts that pin responsibility for outbreaks on indigenous populations and their so-deemed dirty cultural practices. The bushmeat trade and home burials are two practices blamed for the emergence of new pathogens. We need to turn away from this next generation in colonial medicine. If we were to plot these geographies in what are known as relational geographies in contrast, connecting far dispersed parts of the world to our outbreaks GPS coordinates, suddenly New York, London, and Hong Kong, and let's add Berlin here, become key sources of global capital and also some of the world's worst disease hotspots instead. My colleagues and I ended a recent essay on COVID-19 emphasizing this point. Millions of New Yorkers are hiding out in housing stock overseen until recently by one Alicia Glenn, until 2018, the city's deputy mayor for housing and economic development. Glenn is a former Goldman Sachs executive who oversaw the investment company's Urban Investment Group, which finances projects in the kinds of impoverished neighborhoods the firm's other units helped redline. Now, Glenn, of course, is not in any way personally to blame for the outbreak, but is more a symbol of a connection that hits closer to home. Three years before the city hired her upon a housing crisis and great recession in part of its own making, her former employer, Goldman Sachs, along with JPM Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, and Morgan Stanley, took 63% of the resulting U.S. federal emergency loan financing. Goldman Sachs, cleared of overhead, moved to diversifying its holdings out of the crisis. Goldman Sachs took 60% in Shuanghui Investment and Development, part of the giant Chinese agribusiness that bought U.S.-based Smithfield Foods, the largest hog producer in the world. For $300 million, Goldman Sachs also scored out-and-out -out ownership of 10 poultry farms in Fujian and Hunan, provinces not far from Wuhan. Goldman Sachs also invested up to $300 million alongside Deutsche Bank in hog raising in the same provinces. So these relational geographies have circulated all the way back. There is, of course, the pandemic presently sickening Glenn's constituencies apartment to apartment across New York City, 
the largest U.S. COVID-19 epicenter. But we need also to acknowledge that the loop of causes of the outbreak in part extended out from New York City to begin with, however minor in this instance Goldman Sachs investment may be for a system the size of China's agriculture. Is China itself also to blame? Yes. China, at the start of its own cycle of capital accumulation, is invested in building out its new empire, including the kinds of physical and social infrastructures needed to support such global reach. Its development, aimed largely at feeding its people domestically, is helping select for the emergence of these new pathogens, including COVID-19. But China is also invested in suppressing such outbreaks in ways the U.S. and Britain, for instance, are utterly incapable as a matter of structural decay. The Chinese state applied the full weight of its resources to match the scale of the disaster. The U.S. and Britain refused such efforts as a matter of real politique, having given up on its own public health as a commons decades ago, increasing neglecting public health or selling it off as a lucrative, fictitious commodity. The point here is that the cause of COVID-19 and other such pathogens is now not just found in the object of any one infectious agent or its clinical course or point of origin, but also in the field of ecosystemic relations that capital and other structural causes have pinned back to their own advantage one side of the world to another. A wide variety of pathogens representing different taxa, source hosts, modes of transmission, clinical courses, and epidemiological outcomes, all the earmarks that send us running wild-eyed to our search engines upon each outbreak mark, in actuality, different parts and pathways along the same kinds of circuits of land use and value accumulation. Now, if deadly infections strike us cold with fear, it is in part because they operate at levels of organization beyond our daily experience. Street smarts are not enough, kiddo. Pathogens are typically too tiny to see and the epidemic ways by which they arrive too large. The physics of disease wave and particle are largely invisible to our routine social practices. Even our present day bellwethers, animated by the very best of modern science, are a house divided. Hospitals are eating away at their own means by which to figure out how epidemiologies work increasingly confounding the information the marketplace processes, quarterly margins and medical bills, with epidemiological inference. That's clearly the case in the United States, where over the course of four decades, a neoliberal ideology neglected the commons of a shared public health or monetized it off into individual insurance accounts 28 million people can't afford, and 24 million more people could only afford in part. Viruses, on the other hand, are more than willing to accommodate those whose governments neglect them. The structural adjustment that is leaving people to die from COVID in their homes in New York City is recapitulated in people left to die in the streets of Conakry and Monrovia from a suddenly urbanized Ebola. Now, historically, a disease's shadow could be observed upon many a polity's proverbial cave wall. To some places, birds of omen signal a spike in dead bodies a village over. To others, the sick suffered animistic possession, infected by a life cycle undergoing its own birth by infection, reproduction by transmission, and death by immunoclearance or in its host's own demise. With infectious disease, the prime source of mortality through most of human history, 
pathogens appeared a major impetus for the emergence of the modern state and its institutions. The latter, as much the stuff of sci-fi fantasy for our prehistoric ancestors as smartphones or landing a robot on an asteroid. Historian Sheldon Watts writes of these new social technologies in medieval Europe, quote, in Northern and Central Italy during this era, the part of Europe where most innovative thinking arose, sorry about that, Berlin, elite ideas underwent a transformation around 1439 to 1450 to still new notions of health as publica utilitas were added intellectual stimuli brought in from Ottoman-threatened Byzantium. Emerging from this complex of perceptions that society was an organism and poor people carriers of plague was an ideology of order, which during the epidemic crises justified intervention into the lives of ordinary people. First created in Florence and its sister city-states by humanist scholars, jurists, and health magistrates, who were usually not university-trained physicians, the order ideology gradually spread to France and Spain and beyond, end quote. The embryonic population health of the Sukkotian migration control, quarantines, and outbreak pantries also modernized expedient discrimination. Jews at the stake yesterday are replaced by the four ages today, heroin addicts, homosexuals, hemophiliacs, and Haitians, as they were characterized at the beginning of the HIV-AIDS epidemic in the late 20th century. This reverse reification from things to people acts both as a wistful anthropomorphism, making disease somehow a party with which we might negotiate detente, as well as a bludgeon upon deviations of a hideously useful arbitrary norm. Now, epidemiologists are caught in this kind of context. We treat them as our motherboard shamans, and they mathematize the gap between object and subject, between spectral disease and the very real people endangered. Indeed, each of us in lands of neoliberal neglect, global north to south, is tempted to play epidemiologists. How dangerous is COVID-19? Is the case fatality rate 10% as in parts of Italy or the 1% typically bandied about? Uh, Let's see. um, Clearly, the denominator is much greater than hospital admissions, deflating population mortality way down. And the surge in caseload may in part arise from an increase in testing. That's all what we're telling ourselves, but that's all fool's gold. The infection and testing rates don't really matter in this context. They aren't statistical fetishes with which you can protect yourself. Indeed, as anyone who plays one of those board games knows, we can have a virus that kills fewer patients per infection that ends up killing many orders more people overall. So our armchair epidemiology trying to back of the envelope the real case fatality ratio is a symptom of lifeboat capitalism. You've been abandoned by the state, and now you're calculating your own unclear odds. We should instead be overturning the entire game board and making the moneyed and their environmental handmaidens pay up to get hospital capacity to match admissions. So if you should get sick, whatever the virus's community attack rate, you'll be taken care of by the best our society can offer. So right now it's the deaths per 100,000 population and the nurse absences in hospitals that matter most for neoliberalized countries. Only when nations that are now organized around mass theft decide instead to launch 
active campaigns in disease suppression, going door to door, working with communities to corner the virus, will the infection and testing rates mean more than the death drive of your escapist gambling? As applied to population, the preponderance of such cost-benefit analyses is organized around an ethics of economism, where the economy is the most important thing, and that protects the state budgets in corporate margins first, rather than the communities at which such interventions are supposed to be aimed. Almost no effort in that literature addresses the structural pillaging that produces the artificial scarcities and epidemiological threats these analyses are supposed to track. Our problems here, then, are more than mere matters of technical complication. They're nominators and numerators and the such. There's a deeply social component to such maths. One need not be Ludwig Wittgenstein or ethno-mathematician to reject philosopher Slavic Zizek's laconomism that what are called synthomes, which are the heart of the materiality of the written word, qualitatively differ from mathemes, their mathematical analogs. For maths also carry libidinal investment and are also subjectivized, not only along historical trajectories long and short, but in a deeply personal way. The numbers on the back of my envelope, or as, as you can find on the internet now, personal calculators that can factor my chances of surviving a COVID-19 infection are somehow supposed to comfort me indeed even thrill me in a kind of polynomial porn. Now, that doesn't spoil mathematics as a field. It just makes it part of the fabric of human experience. However useful projecting disease dynamics at the population level, the formalisms on which many such analyses are based are themselves just as entrained into the codified myopia of dominant paradigms as any other language. Technicists in public health, uh, as the quants on Wall Street can be maneuvered grant by grant, policy by policy, into deriving kleptocratic presuppositions after the fact. So it ends up that the calculations somehow routinely converge on the notion that the normal so many wish to get back to is exactly what we need to address the crisis the normal caused in the first place. Indeed, we can see this kind of magical thinking on the front end of epidemics as well. Capital attempts to discipline pathogens. But unlike most epidemiologists, the little buggers routinely violate protocol. Yes, to their great credit, vaccines, pharmaceuticals, and modern public health policies have been successful in addressing a wide array of diseases. The smallpox and polio vaccines do work and have driven the former to extinction and the latter to widespread extirpation. Clean water, where and when available, marginalizes cholera. In falling to what are now standard health practices, these pathogens show themselves to embody the very reductionism used to defeat them. Their biologies are indeed the sum of their parts. In understanding the molecular properties of the viruses and their proximate means of transmission, experts have been able to deliver stunning epidemiological victories for humans and their livestock alike. But not all pathogens appear so cooperative. HIV, tuberculosis, malaria, influenza, Ebola, now coronavirus, among others, killing millions, confound even the most concerted efforts. Lab, field, and modeling efforts, powered now by industrial computing, appear presently inadequate to the task of rolling back these scourges. 
interventions are faltering. The more intransient diseases are intrinsically holistic in nature. They are capable of using interactions at one level of biocultural organization to evolve out from underneath interventions directed at them from another. They operate across fluctuating swaths of time and space and host range. So vaccines and pills alone, however efficacious, are rarely decisive. Indeed, in some uh, math spaces, such interventions can exacerbate outbreaks. That is to say, taking a step back, modeling or scientific epistemology more broadly may have helped cause the evolution of such holistic diseases. Sources of mortality compete. If you don't die of one thing, you will end up dying of something else. When some diseases are defeated, others we cannot think through easily as a matter of cultural necessity arise to take their place. So we scientists, to return to a theme, may be guilty of more than a failure of imagination. By operating on bended knee, we may have had a role in selecting for such pathogens in the first place. Now, how to escape all these traps that we've just discussed? Berlin, land of Niels Fromm, I haven't visited you yet, but you welcomed my trans son last year for a couple weeks with an open heart. You beguiled him with your strict laws against graffiti that you so wantonly ignore. Friends and family have toyed with the idea of flying to you to get the health care we are unable to find here during the pandemic and in the everyday, on this tail end of the American cycle of accumulation. And there are many places and peoples around the world, from forests to flaneurs, that are delights worth saving. For many a speculative realist, on the other hand, we are already in the middle of the catastrophic accident. For much of humanity, our collective face is now only beginning to hit the windshield. We are too late even for salvaging history and making do with what will remain. We are down to imagining the ecologies to follow that are free of humanity. And I say, fuck that. We are obligated less by Kantian duty than the laughter of the playground to jump atop an eco-socialist alternative full bore against all momenta, capitalist, fascist, and eco-modernist. We can replug ourselves back into a planetary metabolism that, however differently expressed place to place, reconnects our ecologies and our economies. Such ideals are more than matters of the utopian. In doing so, we converge on immediate solutions. We protect the forest complexity that keeps deadly pathogens from lining up hosts for a straight shot out onto the world's travel network. We reintroduce the livestock and crop diversities and reintegrate animal and crop farming at scales that keep pathogens from ramping up in virulence and geographic extent. We allowed our food animals to reproduce on site, restarting the natural selection that allows immune evolution to track pathogens in real time. We encourage mutual liberation by returning farmer autonomy and community of control around the world. Big picture, we stop treating nature and community so full of all we need to survive and thrive as just another competitor to be run off by the market. The way out is nothing short of birthing a world, or perhaps more along the lines of returning back to Earth. It will also help solve, sleeves rolled up, many of our most pressing problems. 
None of us stuck in our living rooms from Berlin to Beijing, or worse, mourning our dead, want to go through such an outbreak again. Yes, infectious diseases for most of human history, our greatest source of premature mortality, will remain a threat. But given the diversity of pathogens now in circulation, the worst spilling over now almost annually, we are likely facing another deadly pandemic in far shorter time than the 100-year lull since 1918. It isn't just the disease, but it's that dead weight of dread that speaks little to a life well-lived. From anywhere between an order of magnitude, 10 to 1, to a 1 to 1 match, many of the cells in our bodies aren't even our own. They have all sorts of microbes in us. And we handle that indignity by assuming ourselves the ecological stage across which our microorganismal visitors must mindlessly interact, as if we were gods looking down upon subjects so puny they didn't know we existed. But while we may not be the divinities of the Anthropocene we spin ourselves to be, certainly we can do much better out there. Can we return to an earth we already walk upon? Thank you. Thank you so much for such a dense, beautiful lecture. Also referring to the bigger picture at the end, that has been also the topic of our series You said in your lecture very clearly that the cause of COVID-19, but also other pathogens, is not only to be found in the particular outbreak zones, as you said, or in the object of the virus itself, but is to be found also in the ecosystem relations. You called it relational geographics. That, as you said, involve circuits of land use and value accumulation. And also in your book, you point out that we must not treat the virus as an object from an epistemological point of view, but we have to look at the larger context. And my question would be, why would this actually be helpful in confronting the virus? Well, because uh, as I was getting at in, in the talk for Ebola, for instance, Uh, Ebola, we first identified emerging out of the southern Sudan in 1976, and for many decades, it would spill over uh, now and then and take out a, a village or two or, or a guerrilla troop, and it's a terrible thing, particularly because the case fatality rates are 90%. But then come 2013, you have Ebola in West Africa spill out and infect 35,000 people and uh, killing 11,000, leaving bodies in the regional capital. So they looked at the genetics of the virus, and it was still very much the same hadn't changed at all, still the same clinical course, still the same generation time from infection to infection. So what made this thing different? And it had to do with the context in which the uh, uh, pathogens are now arising. Once we do things like permit capital to extend from one side of the world to another in such a way to basically drive the deforestation that in essence may on one hand destroy many a uh, host species, but will also allow other host species that have been, in essence, squirreled away for so long to suddenly spring open and begin to have a greater interface with humans. So for an Ebola's case, you have the reservoir of frugivore and insectivore bats, uh, reservoir of Ebola, suddenly are freed out of their forest areas and are able to actually prosper very well in the new commodity plantations that are built. So for instance, 
You might have macadamia nuts. You might uh, have palm oil. These are areas free of competitors, free of predators. You have to be able to fly back and forth between their foraging and roosting sites. And then, of course, increasing the interface between uh, the bats and the humans, uh, leading to the spillover. So, you know, in the end, the vaccine isn't going to do anything about the rate of spillover from these bats and the multitude of, of different types of pathogens that are spilling over. It's great to have a vaccine on the back end if something goes human to human. But do we really want to be confronted by a series of coronaviruses or Ebola viruses or, or Zikas that are capable of spilling out of their reservoir species and being able to shoot through these increasingly simplified environments through the forest, through the peri-urban areas, to the local regional capital, and then out onto the global travel network? I mean, it's not something that we can survive not just on a medical level, but in terms of our economy and societies, of having to confront something like this every few years. Maybe I can just pick up on the vaccines now, because you also criticize in your lecture the biomedical measures to master the virus, including vaccines, but also pills. What will happen if we have them in a year or so? Is it justified to put hope in them? And what is the specificity of this new coronavirus in terms of vaccination and medication? Yeah, I want to be very clear. I'm not opposed to vaccines or biomedical interventions at all. It might be that uh, we are finally going to provide enough resources and attention to it that we would finally come up with one. But it's uh, one of those wily RNA viruses that are able to evolve out from underneath us. It might be that if we do come up with one, we'll be down to some sort of flu model where we'll have to get new vaccines every year, which in retrospect can work, but only kind of. It's not that this coronavirus is going to be as virulent as it has been. Uh, we will build herd immunity. Every outbreak ever uh, eventually burns out for the most part, especially an acute infection like this. But we don't want to be in a position where we leave a billion bodies behind in the wake of such an outbreak. If we're waiting for a year to 18 months, uh, how many people are going to be killed along the way before we get there? So this really speaks to almost the kind of post hoc nature of biomedical intervention. I'm glad it's there. We should have it. But at the same time, it's a means by which emergency um, kind of thinking, which we need to have, it is an emergency and we need to do the things necessary to stop this. Emergency thinking takes the air all out of the room for any other discussion other than an emergency. And there isn't room to discuss the more structural causes driving the emergence, not only of COVID-19, but of uh, multiple strains of other pathogens now presently circulating around the world. Mm. Um, to go back to corona, to understand a bit um, this virus in the frame of your research, you have mentioned that we knew all these structural problems since many years now um, with a lot of other viruses, but it's only now with corona that we took drastic measures to combat it, right? So my question would be how this COVID-19 virus fill in into the series of pathogens emerging in the last decades. So what would you say is the similarities, but also what are the specifics about corona that seem to make it particularly dangerous or that actually drive to this emergency situation? Right, right. Well, you know, um, to start, uh, we have the unfortunate thing of having to run a series of not-so-natural experiments, as it were, seeing how these different types of pathogens emerge in order to get a handle on what makes them similar to each other. 
And so the framework our group has uh, converged on as a beginning is the notion of a kind of regional circuit in different parts of the world. So you, in essence, start off with the notion of the the feral forest from which many a wild animal uh, is a reservoir for many of these exotic pathogens that we humans haven't been exposed to. As forests are subjected to deforestation and are treated as the neoliberal frontier from which uh, commodity crops and livestock are raised, we continue to push into the forest in such a way that uh, we are not only increasingly interfacing with these wild animals that we weren't doing so much before, but we are simplifying the forest. Forests are very complex places. It's not easy to line up a whole bunch of hosts to shoot a pathogen through. But when you simplify it, uh, it, it allows the host to encounter not only more hosts of its own species, but of other species uh, on a regular basis and in a regular uh, encounter rate, so that the pathogen that would normally be bottled up in a, in a host species or, or one or two host species is suddenly sprung free. And it's sprung free by virtue of uh, taking a ride up, uh, on those livestock that are being raised in the hinterlands and then subsequently trucked back into the city through the peri-urban landscape. So the pathogens either hitch a ride on those livestock or the wild food animals who are increasingly industrialized or on the labor that are tending these animals. So it makes its way through the rural landscape to the city edge or in the city direct, whether or not it's being sold a uh, live animal in the market as it occurred in Wuhan, or it's brought to being processed on the processing plants, typically on the edge of a city. So we have, in essence, the circuit from deep forests through the rural areas to the city. Now, it happens to be that each of these different viruses emerged at a different part along that circuit. We have, for instance, the Ebola spilling over into commodity crops or into humans who are tending commodity crops. So from bats to humans that way, coronavirus, its genetics indicate that it is a recombinant of a bat coronavirus, as well as a pangolin coronavirus. A pangolin is a scaly kind of anteater looking like mammal uh, that's sold as wild food. So at some point, that bat coronavirus got together with the pangolin coronavirus and recombined. Where? Was it out in the jungle? Was it within a particular human? It's probably unlikely to be in Wuhan because wild bats aren't flying around there. So in all likelihood, it occurred perhaps in a wild animal or in a human who was tending animals out on the hinterlands before it was trucked into Wuhan direct. Uh, that's the forest side of it. Uh, other pathogens are emerging along this circuit in other ways. So on the other end, many of the influenzas, the new avian and swine influenzas, H5N1, H1N1, 2009, are spilling over from a wild waterfowl into swine and poultry factory farms in which their virulence can be ramped up by virtue of packing in so many immunologically similar animals together. So it selects for the more virulent strains that can burn through and subsequently spilling over into humans and going human to human. So that's at the other end. Other pathogens do it a little bit differently. Uh, then it gets a little bit more complicated. Zika made its way out of Africa through Southeast Asia and then subsequently into Brazil. It's primarily an urban pathogen, but part of this circuit is the public health austerity imposed on cities in such a way that they can't provide the environmental sanitation uh, necessary to control mosquitoes. The mosquitoes emerge and are able to uh, transmit uh, new pathogens in ways that they were previously controlled uh, by such sanitation. 
and dengue and yellow fever are foundationally related to what is going on in the peri-urban areas and back into the rainforest. So in essence, we have these various variations on a theme. You start off with this circuit from forest to city, and the pathogens are emerging in different combinations along the way. What, in essence, uh, combines all those different circuits across the world is that they are interconnected into these broader global circuits of capital in which finance is looking for ways to be able to find opportunities to invest or driving efforts to deforest and develop and turn the last of virgin farmland, the last of the forest areas into commodities. You just mentioned uh, the alienation uh, of nature and also the way we reproduce ourselves because we have talked in this series about it. Um, I would have like two last points. Do you think that this returning back to Earth could be a path that is discussed around the term of degrowth policies? You said it is capitalism. The degrowth politics suggest to slow down, and this is also a question I wanted to ask, suggests a local production, also a local production of food, to localize the food chain so that we don't have the problem that we transport this uh, huge trajectories from one end of the world to the other end of the world. Yeah, I'm going to start with that second one first, if you don't mind. I mean, what you see is post-World War II, you have the emergence of what's called the livestock revolution where what were previously backyard poultry here in the States, you had at most 700 million chickens. Suddenly, uh, that whole industry was restructured to be completely vertically integrated under single roofs of these large agribusiness, Tyson Cargo and all that. And that model subsequently spread around the world. Uh, so in the States, you went from 700 million chickens, primarily backyard, to uh, over 6 billion and concentrated in certain parts of the country, which helps select for strains of pathogens that can uh, infect really infectious and really virulent. But they began to export poultry around the world because they were making so many chickens that the Americans couldn't do their patriotic duty enough to eat enough of them. So we find um, all sorts of livestock being moved from one part of the world to the other. There's an example that I talk about in my book of uh, in Manitoba, in Canada, there was a hog uh, breeder operation that would load up hog in planes, fly them, so yes, pigs do fly, fly them all the way to Germany, and then they were trucked up to Krasnodar. And so what that does is that, uh, and that was just an example of the extent to which livestock are being uh, flown around the world and trucked around the world, including within Europe. And so think about what happens for the pathogens. And if you start to trade hog and poultry around the world, you also start to increase the kinds of reassortment events that occur, that trading of these genomic segments, and you increase the diversity of influenzas and increase the speed by which these influenzas can converge upon a human-to-human -human infection. So to answer that part of the question, most definitely we need to do end that kind of level of export and move toward a more regionalized production. It isn't merely just the scale of operation. It has to do with farmer autonomy. Who gets to control how these livestock are raised, in what way, and at what speed? You end up producing immunological firebreaks in such a way that a pathogen can't go from one end of the forest to the city in, in such a fashion as we have described it. But that involves short-circuiting capitalist kind of production in agriculture. 
and you have to rescue what were the town economies by which local farmers could survive and introduce money into rural areas and circulate money that they got into the local areas instead of having almost the entirety of their revenue go off to pay for agribusiness inputs that are outside the rural area. And rural areas, in essence, treated as sacrifice zones for agribusiness capital. So agribusiness comes in, forces farmers to compete with each other. This leads to the consolidation of land, increase in the size of operations, both for crops and livestock, and then production for putting meat on animals at the expense of producing so much waste that people can't swim uh, in their local streams. Now, your uh, first question had to do with degrowth. And um, the funny thing is, I've been as much inundated, even as a part of an opposition to what's going on, as much inundated with the presumptions of the system that I'm in as anybody else who leads it. And so a few years ago, I had a colleague by the name of Richard Koch, who's a veterinarian and a, a disease wildlife biologist, had broached the notion of degrowth. And it, it, it shook me because um, I mean, how would a capitalist system survive except out of growth? But, you know, over the years, I've come increasingly understanding the why we need to move out of that. I mean, growth, all that is, you're, you're producing commodities that destroy the environment. You know, what might be degrowth in the context of capitalism, it would perhaps be a step forward. But I think it needs to go beyond that in terms of redefining exactly what a, a human economy is. A human economy that can integrate all species on the earth, right? This was an incredible amount of arguments, an incredible amount of connections of facts and ideas to reflect upon, I think. For me, it is clear that we have to change our food chains now and the way they're capitalized all over the world, as uh, you pointed out again and again. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening, everyone, and good evening. You have just listened to the third edition of the podcast, Burning Futures on Ecologies of Existence, featuring Rob Wallace on the political economy of pandemics. Thank you for listening. Burning Futures.